Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey, everyone. I appreciate your listening to episode 29 of Sexology Podcast. Our podcast today turned seven months old, and I wanted to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and giving us your honest feedback. I would really appreciate it if you take a minute and write us an honest review on iTunes or Stitchers. It means a lot to me. This is a show for you, and I want to choose topics that are relevant to what you're experiencing. So your feedback is essential to growth of my podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the nature of desire and some of the cultural suppression of female sexuality. I am very excited about my conversation with Dr. Deborah Tolman. I read her book a few years ago, and I found it very relevant to what many of my clients are experiencing and sharing with me in our sessions. Today, we're going to talk about what are some of common ways that girls deal with the dilemma of desire. And what are some barriers for this population to experience desire? As I said, our guest today is Dr. Deborah Tolman. She's a professor of women and gender studies at Hunter College and professor of clinical social psychology at the Graduate Center at City University of New York. Prior to City University, she was a professor of sexuality studies at San Francisco State University, where she was the founding director of Center for Research on Gender and Sexuality. 
Deborah holds a doctorate in applied developmental psychology from the Graduate School of Education at Harvard University and has a master's degree from UPenn in sexuality education. Her first book, Dilemma of Desire, Teenage Girls Talk About Sexuality, was awarded the Association of Women in Psychologists Book Award. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Deborah Tolman. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during our introduction, our guest is a psychologist and a scholar, Dr. Deborah Tolman. Dr. Tolman, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely my honor. As I was sharing with you before the recording, I first got familiar with your work through the book that you have, Dilemma of Desire, and I found it very insightful and fascinating. Can you tell a little bit about your research on adolescent sexuality so our listeners would be able to gather more information about your research? Well, Dilemmas of Desire um, is actually uh, having its 15th anniversary this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it's, it's, it, it might be something we should talk about because uh, while it was, the study was done and it was written uh, quite a long time ago, in fact, before we had smartphones, uh, before people were regularly on the internet, before Facebook, um, I continue to hear from you and from other readers that it remains very salient, um, which is something I'm thinking a lot about. So the original study, and I have been doing research on adolescent sexuality, primarily girls, for um, over 20 years now. And that original study asked a very simple question, which was, in what ways and, and how do girls themselves experience sexual desires, sexual feelings? the very large literature on girls' sexuality at that time, and again, very, very, very large, essentially was looking at sexuality as a bad outcome. And the research questions that were posed were really about, in essence, how do we make them stop? Uh, but no one had ever asked the question of whether girls themselves might actually want to be engaging in sexual uh, experiences. So it was really a very simple question. What are girls' experiences of sexual desire? And um, in the U.S., there had been a real focus on um, girls of color, African-American girls, poor girls, really as if they were adolescent girls' sexuality, as if no other girls even had it. Um, so uh, I included both uh, urban girls, primarily of color. That's uh, the demographics in the United States. Um, and where I was in the Northeast. And, um, but I also included girls who live in the suburbs outside of the city, but in nice kind of upper middle class, middle class areas. And those girls at the time were really not thought of as sexual at all. So including them was a little bit of a new uh, adventure and pushing back against this idea that only girls of color were somehow sexual. And of course, if sexual and if girls and if of color, out of control. So that was, that was the premise of how the study was organized. It was also organized not to be a survey, um, not to be a questionnaire, but to be uh, a qualitative interview study. Because in order to understand about anyone's experience of something, you have to ask them to talk about it. 
Uh, and in particular, the research I did then and that I always do is narrative psychology research. In essence, asking people to tell stories about their experience and then being able to analyze those stories in quite complex ways, particularly as a psychologist, being able to, to listen to stories, not just for the straightforward words that people are saying, but to really listen interpretively, almost like you would to any book or text, right? That is so, so right. And I wanted to say that I know that you mentioned that the study was uh, more focused on adolescents in the United States, but I found it very relevant, at least with my experience growing in the Middle East. So I got excited. I wanted to share that. Please go ahead. Oh, and I would really love to talk more about that because that's always a question um, when you do research in one particular place is how, how relevant is this going to be for women and girls in other places um, or anybody? Uh, and I subsequently have been involved in some research that really focused on that question of gender norms and sexuality and adolescence in a more global context. So if you want to talk about that a little bit later, I'd be happy to do that for a different study. Sure. I have done a lot of them since Dilemmas of Desire, but this was the one where I asked questions in ways that were pretty unusual at that time. I would say the very good news is that many, many more people are asking questions about from a positive sexuality perspective, really asking questions that in which we want to know um, what would make this part of adolescent girls normative development, because this is part of what you do, you become a sexual person, doesn't mean you're a sexually active person, but you are a sexual person. What can we do to support that? And how can we understand their experience by listening to what it is they have to say? So now, uh, that is not such a crazy off the rails thing to do, which it kind of was at the time. So in that study, that is the question that I asked, which again was a departure and kind of much to my surprise, because my idea was, well, of course, this is part of girls' experience and we just don't, no one ever asks them about it, so we don't know about it. But once we ask them, we're going to find out this is a really big part of their lives and of course, it's part of their sexuality and their experience. And um, I was frankly floored and stunned at the time to find out that that really was not the case at all which is why the title of the book is Dilemmas of Desire, because desire really posed a dilemma for girls. And what they were bumping up against was a couple of different things. One of them is, I think, a still very entrenched sexual double standard where girls really good, nice girls are not even supposed to have these feelings. And if they do, they're not really supposed to act on them because their job is to be the gatekeeper for adolescent boy sexuality. So if girls are feeling desire too, well, it kind of screws up the whole system, right? It blows up if we don't have gatekeepers. Uh, so that was a first surprise for me, uh, which I think reflects my own naivete and um, some things about my own life and my own experience. And um, secondarily, um, I found that there were a lot of similarities between the urban girls and the suburban girls, but also some important differences what they were worried about, what um, made their ability to bring their own feelings into their experiences possible or not possible. Um, and so I it, uh, had three basic findings in, in dilemmas. One was what I called silent bodies. Because remember, the question is about girls' experience of sexual feelings. That is, feelings in their body. And as you know, we might want to talk about girls and women are under so much pressure really not to feel feelings in our body. We're not supposed to have hungers of any kind. We're not supposed to be hungry for food. 
when we're not supposed to be hungry for sex. Um, so really, that was my question. And I, and I asked that question, which often confused girls or they, they didn't even understand what I was talking about. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So some of them basically solved this dilemma, which is how do I have and incorporate my own sexual feelings into feeling, thinking, making decisions about myself as a sexual person? So one group of girls were, I, I called them, thought of them as having silent bodies. That is, they said they didn't feel sexual feelings. And it was a problem for them that it was something that they, they were confused about or they, they wish wasn't the case or they thought, you know, this is really puzzling to me. And, or, and they, some, men, some of them really wanted to know more about it. Then there was a, gr- a group called... Um, Girls whose, sex, whose feelings have sort of gone underground, right? That they had a kind of resistance to their uh, own sexual feelings. And that took various forms. And then there's a very, very tiny, tiny group of girls. And this was not a large group because that's not how you do qualitative research. Who did claim their feelings, did have those feelings as part of their experience. Um, and were very aware that they were not supposed to and that they were doing something where they were defying these rules that they and their bodies were supposed to follow. Um, across the urban and suburban girls, I didn't see any differences in terms of which of these ways of dealing with this dilemma that they fell into, but their experiences were in some ways quite different. And that's where uh, I found myself at the end of Dilemmas of Desire. And uh, it seems to have, as I said, resonated with a, a lot of people doing research, young people, parents in the United States at the time and over time. And I, I possibly wanted to speak with you about why. How can that be possible? I expected this book to be collecting dust on a shelf by now. Uh, <laughs> really, like that would have been a victory for me, for my book to become irrelevant um, and for girls to be able to actually freely become sexual people in the ways that they wanted uh, that were safe, that um, made them feel comfortable. And that is certainly not exactly what we're finding today. It's a little complicated, and we can talk about that too. Absolutely. And I love that you were talking about that, like different categories and how teens, girls were experiencing it, because I see women who are older in different relationships and coming into the office, my office for like relational issues for sex therapy, and they still struggle. They have, they got the messages as, as a teen girls, and they're still struggling with that. So I think although it might be the society's changed and shifted a little bit, but still this topic is very relevant, at least based on my perspective. I, I think it's relevant too. And frankly, I think now it's gotten a little bit worse and more confusing for girls in particular, because they're getting very, very conflicting messages about how they're supposed to be as sexual people. They're supposed to, again, this is in the U.S., and it gets us primarily among white, more privileged girls. So they, we've had a 180-degree switch where girls are now supposed to project a kind of competent sexuality. They're supposed to be, and I use air quotes very loudly, empowered to, quote, own their sexuality on the one hand, which often has to do with what they look like they're doing. And on the other hand, there's so much more emphasis on looks now. 
not that there wasn't then there was, but now it's so it's their, their sexuality, their bodies, even their being sexual people. Is so commodified has become such a thing as opposed to a personal embodied experience. Um, but on the other hand, they're supposed to not cross some invisible line into being, you know, a bad girl because slut shaming is a huge issue in the United States and in uh, a lot of Anglophile countries. And so on the one hand, if they're supposed to be sexually powerful and confident, and on the other hand, they're subjected to both the possibility and the, the really awful consequences of slut shaming, that's very confusing. And that's a really profound contradiction. And I think that's where we find ourselves today with white girls in this country, more privileged girls. Mm-hmm. With girls of color, it's still a little bit of a different story and, and complicated by celebrity culture. But I also think that your point about women having been girls is really, really important. And that's one of the things I thought was really useful about this study is the idea that if as a girl, you're not supposed to really engage with these feelings. And then suddenly as an adult woman, you are. Well, how does that happen? You know, does someone flip the switch when you walk down the aisle? If that's how you were going and at the time it was pretty mandated that that's what you were supposed to do. I think that's loosened up a little bit. But exactly when does that change? Um, and what conditions enable that change to be positive? And as you're saying, you have people coming into your office really, really struggling with, with these feelings. And that makes a lot of sense to me because women were girls once. Right. And how much, as you mentioned, that if you're trying to silence this desire, this feeling with the negative and having a negative attitude toward sexuality, when you are in a relationship, it is so challenging to change that perspective. So I definitely agree with you on that. And I love the idea that you were talking about how things change now, because now I feel still the definition of the sexuality is very narrowed for adolescents and teens because of that, you know, that you got to have certain kind of like there's a right kind of sexuality that, mm-hmm. unless you're fitting in this small category. Uh, it's a kind of, as you said, like a slut shaming or you're not doing it right, which is which adds mm-hmm. a lot of pressure. Yes. Not doing it right is a really, really good point. And in fact, I did a study about adolescent girls giving oral sex to boys, which th- that's a story in and of itself. But One of the things we found in that study was girls were so worried about doing a good job. Um, In fact, there's an article about that that I published, and the title is, It's Like Doing Homework, which is a direct (laughs) quote from one of the girls, um, essentially, you know, taking a test in oral sex and getting an A, which is really not about your own experience or your own feelings at all. It's about a kind of achievement which is a a huge kind of way of talking about girls' lives that is pervasive in the United States. And I'm sure among um, a lot of the women you see when they were girls and also girls um, in the various places where people are hearing this podcast as well. Right. And the other thing that you, as you were talking about the study, I was kind of curious, based on my experience, there is a huge double standards when it comes to boys and girls. What's your experience as far as issues around sexuality when it comes to this topic? I've just redone this study, actually, and I'm just working on a new book about the study, as I think you noted, this new study where I kind of went back and asked the same questions and also asked some questions about technology and social media. And uh, the thing I'm finding is that the 
double standard, particularly the gender inequality in the organization of heterosexual relationships, is really still quite entrenched on the one hand, right? And on the other hand, there's sort of a press for girls not to be prudes. That's a, a thing they're worried about. But they're also not supposed to be sluts. And they, again, pay the price for it. Uh, and, and if I listen very carefully, what I hear over and over again is a sort of like na- a narration, of like a, a story that in the end is still about gender inequality. So, for example, now girls might recognize sexual pleasure as something that they might experience, but it doesn't seem that important or their own desires as something they might experience. Not important. Uh, they're really organizing still, and, and the boys that they're with, and society is still organizing around the uh, importance of boys' sexuality, boys' sexual feelings, boys um, having what they want in order for girls to then have what they want, which tends to not be focused on their sexual feelings, that they're almost cavalier about how they feel in part, I think, because they are so focused on how they look, because the pressure to look right is so intense and so profound. And certainly bringing social media into the picture, for example, presenting a particular way of looking, looking sexy, but not too sexy, looking pretty, but not doing it wrong, to your point, doing it right, uh, is so much a part of their experience now that it seems that their own pleasure, their own feelings, even if they're present, don't seem very important to them. No one is giving them the message that that's actually a really important part of your life. And that's an important part of becoming an adult woman. Absolutely. And big part of my practice, I work with clients who are struggling with eating disorders. And to your point, it is just so frustrating to see that all this like talented, smart young women and teens are trying to achieve something that's not achievable and kind of fitting in the image that's even it's not realistic for them. So there's just this constant pressure to achieve this perfection. And it's not possible for anybody. And that's really the point, because it's really driven this kind of inflammation of a particular kind of desire to look right, to be perfect. Um, And that, you know, that's different for different groups of girls, right? So that what you're supposed to look like for African-American girls in the U.S. is different than what you're supposed to look like for Latino girls in the U.S. is different than what you're supposed to look like for well-to-do white girls. It's different, but still the idea that you're supposed to look right is pervasive and and in essence not achievable because if it's achievable, you're not going to go out and buy stuff to make yourself look better, which is driving Uh, I think this constant, constant drumbeat for looking perfect. Right. And the other challenge with that is, as you mentioned, that they're just not uh, achievable for many teens and young women and it impacts their confidence. And one other thing that you were talking about, which was so interesting, was that how teens and even young women I work with, they see it's like sexuality as this like Olympic performance. You got to do it in a certain way and do certain things in order to make sure you're doing a good job at it or you're getting it. So then so interesting to see how it changes people's perspective of their own sexuality and what sexuality is. 
Yeah, I think it actually forms their perspective, right? Because they're starting engaging with these pressures so young about their bodies, about how they relate to their own bodies as as a thing, as opposed to, I don't want to say vehicle, but a medium through which we experience the world. Um, the word that captures that, it's kind of a jargony word, but kind of works, is embody, being in your body. Uh, and there's not a lot of messaging about being in your body or it's having your body be yours, having your body be about you know, competence, your physical competence. That's part of your overall competence as a person, for example. It's, there's, and that starts very, very young. Right. And the other thing I'm kind of curious, what in your book, I saw that in the introduction, you mentioned that you're writing a new book called Catching Feelings. It reminded me of the title, reminded me of the conversation I have with some of the teens that I work with in my practice, that right now it seems like developing feelings, sexuality that's associated with emotions are kind of have this negative connotation and negative meaning is that your experience or it's like your research shows something different? Yeah, I, I actually think this is a really, and I wonder about who you're talking about, what, what age group, because one of the things that's happened, I think, is that we've sort of taken psychological, psychosocial development a little bit out of the equation. And I, I wonder if that's because girls, a lot of girls feel pressure to look sophisticated to look older than they are, when in fact they're not older than they are. They're 15, they're 16, right. and they're 17. And so some of the worry that we have about those teenagers is that they are engaging only in casual hookups and that's what they want. That's not what I'm finding, actually. I think that is what's happening um, on college campuses. Right. I find that among teens, what seems to be more, more of a pattern is that they may engage in more casual hookups, which for teenagers doesn't mean having sexual intercourse. It's kind of a great word, right? Because it, you know, it doesn't have an exact meaning. So you can use that language and a little bit hide behind it if you want. But I ask girls over and over again, what does hooking up mean? What does it mean? Um, and these are teenage girls in high school, and they say it means making out, maybe it means like kind of touching a little bit, maybe a little bit oral sex, but generally it's pretty much making out. Whereas among college young people, it often does mean intercourse. So I think making that distinction developmentally between teenagers and young adults or emerging adults is really a critical thing to do. So to the extent that they are engaging in that kind of hooking up, and there's so many different levels of connection that they describe, um, hooking up, being open, so you know, having some kind of recognized connection, but it's not fully committed to a more committed relationship, and there, there are things in between, too, um, these kind of very, very fine levels of connection and commitment that girls may be entering, that that's really how relationships are getting formed. So they're kind of starting with the the hookup or with even, you know, kind of a connection through social media, through technology and moving in the direction of some kind of a relationship. So I'm not finding that what teenagers are describing is rampant casual sex. I'm hearing more like what sounds like a little bit kind of experimentation, a little bit maybe boys sort of pushing. This is an obviously heterosexual sex. 
boys sort of pushing for more sexual interaction than girls might want to have, but not necessarily. It can go the other way too, that boys don't want to actually be having more sexual, deeper sexual experiences than kind of fooling around. That's a whole other story about the pressures that boys are under um, and what they're supposed to want all the time, which girls also believe because that's the story that we're all told. So I, I think it's a little bit more complicated for teenagers and that the casual sex press is really more what's happening among college students. So I don't know if you're seeing high school students or college students come into your office, but that seems to be a difference. My research is about high school students, but obviously the literature is primarily about college students because that's much easier to do than research school students. Absolutely. You're right. And then I definitely see the pressure on hookup culture in my like college students like freshmen and sophomores and but you're absolutely right what what does it mean to engage in a hookup for a young teenager might be different than mm. what is a hookup and casual sex for a college student so yeah I definitely you're right as far as the what's their definition is such a plays a big role yeah and I think because of the way a lot of girls look and even this we have this idea that that girls are hooking up and that means they're having sex. We're like panicked about it all the time and worried about it all the time. But that's actually not what seems to be happening. And over and over again, we see this conflation. If you look at the age range of even the statistics on, 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 on sexual behavior, 15 to 19, 15-year-olds are really, really different than 19-year-olds. And in the number of books that have come out lately, 15 to 24 uh, 15-year-olds are not 24-year-olds. So so clumping that group together right. and then saying this is what's happening among these group of girls is, I think, not a service for us. That we One of the things that my work does is to really try to disaggregate um, that large, large group and say, look, let's focus on teenagers, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, and hear about their experience and not clump it together with, what, with what's happening uh, with young adults. And we talk about it primarily on college campuses, but obviously there are many young adults who are not on college campuses either, and their experience may be different as well. Right, and I know you're a developmental psychologist, and you're right, such a huge difference between a young teenager as far as their sexuality, their perspective, and like their cognition compared yeah. to someone who is in like early 20s. Right. So I'm just kind of curious, what's your recommendations for parents? I know that you have such like fantastic different advocacy, different programs that we can address these issues in more in uh, societal levels. But how can parents help their teenage girls to navigate this dilemma? It is really challenging for parents. And I would say there are a couple different pieces to the puzzle. And I like to think about it as a puzzle as opposed to a question and an answer. Right. And one is that certainly from a, just a young age, having sexuality just be a normal part of development that isn't some, something special that we keep in a little box and we take out when they turn 14 as if they've never heard of it before. I think it's kind of arrogance on the part of adults to think that somehow we're going to tell them about sexuality as if they don't know about it already, particularly in the age of the Internet, obviously they know about it. Uh, so I think that's a still a funny kind of phenomenon that's going on, this idea that we can protect girls. And we should be worried about boys, too, but from all of these messages somehow that we can create a bubble around them in our homes that is not pierceable. 
I think that's really just not reality. So what do we do? I think we can equip them with tools to help them really think about what it is they want to be and who it is they want to be, which is kind of hard for a lot of parents because uh, particularly girls, we still learn to freak out about girls' sexuality as if they can't become sexual people and have that be okay or safe. So we're all still living a little bit in that sexual double standard. So part of the work for parents is really pushing against those beliefs about girls and also, frankly, about boys um, and thinking about how we raise both our girls and our boys, that this is normal, this is normative, this is to be expected, the feelings, learning how to manage those feelings and to figure out what it is you want, a girl wants in any given situation is I think at the heart of supporting young people's sexuality development. I also think giving them, um, again, tools to think critically about kind of the messages that they're getting and who they want to be. And then also, uh, I was just just writing about this. I should have sent this to you. Um, Remembering the pressures that they are under when they're not with us, that to be popular, to be accepted, to be seen as confident and sophisticated and all these things that they're under pressure to be, to simply tell them not to do that, to simply tell them, oh, you should just care about your sexual feelings, your sexual pleasure, as if there is no context in which they are struggling to become a sexual people outside of our um, purview is really not helpful to them either. So I think recognizing that uh, the challenge that, that, they are under to really engage in this part of their lives in a healthy way is important. And I've had a lot of feminist mothers who just want, you know, an easy answer, just be embodied, just live in your body. And I think their girls look at them cross-eyed. What are you talking about? How could I possibly do that? When what I really want is to be accepted. What I really want is to be admired. I want to be considered attractive. Like these are, these are not kind of off the scale things, but how do we help girls do that in a way that um, uh, enables them to think of all of that as something that is about them and that they have a right to feel that way about themselves. So I think kind of going to girls where they are as opposed to telling girls where they're supposed to be is really critical and really, really hard for us as parents, either because we're worried that they're going to become sexual or we're worried that they're going to be sexual in a way that we are worried about or feel bad about. It's really kind of the entire spectrum now. But again, kind of depends on where you're coming from and what your values are. So I think that's something. I also, this is really, really kind of, that might sound off the wall, but I think engaging in bodily practices that help you just connect with your body could be really helpful. So doing yoga, doing Pilates, flamenco dancing, any kind of body practice that helps you connect to how you feel, which gives you some um, power uh, and even defense against the constant press to be obsessed with how you look, could also be very helpful. That's kind of something I'm putting out there. I love that. Yeah. And I see that when I work with, especially with the young teens who are struggling with eating disorder, they are so disconnected with their bodies. So I love the fact that you're saying that practicing things that kind of help them to connect with their bodies, such an important thing for all women, I believe, as you said. It's important for everybody. Eating disorders, as you know, require some kind of dissociation from the body, some kind of disconnection from the hunger in the body. You, that's that's kind of fundamental to 
um, how eating disorders work. And I do think eating disorders and these kinds of struggles with desire are very, very connected because of that. So that's another recommendation that I have. Engaging young women and girls in um, kind of feminist activism, and boys too, I think can be helpful, um, helping them develop a sense of entitlement to their perspective, to their feelings, to what their own, to their own bodies, and to um, the importance of how they feel being as important as how people around them feel, as how boys feel, I think is, is another way to go. But also sending girls out as kind of lone wolves to do this by themselves, which is a moment that we're in in history where you're responsible as an individual for everything that happens to you and you're accountable for everything that happens to you to really challenge that idea and bring girls and and women together in kind of coalition, in collaboration, in cooperation can really help strengthen a different way of understanding messages that are coming at them. Absolutely. And I know you are involved with different advocacy groups, different research groups that helps facilitate this process. Can you share some of those efforts in this area with our listeners? So a number of years ago, I think 2010, I was involved with Lynn Michael Brown and Dana Edel um, co-founding what really is an initiative called SPARK, S-P-A-R-K, that's all capitals, SPARK Movement. And that has been uh, an effort to do intergenerational feminist activism around issues about girls' bodies, girls' and women's bodies. And we work directly with girls to develop different campaigns to challenge sexualization of girls, the ways that girls are subject to sexual violence. We've kind of expanded our aperture on that to really think about girls and people who are marginalized by their bodies. So LGBT people, for example, the ways that girls of color are particularly uh, surveyed, or people watch them very carefully, what they're doing, and judge them, and uh, the different ways that that happens for um, white girls. And again, this is the U.S. context. I'm sure it's 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 different where you are. I'd love to hear more about that. And so we've done various campaigns. There was a big campaign for, uh, to get Seventeen Magazine, which is a very popular magazine for young teenagers in the U.S. to stop photoshopping girls' bodies and faces. And that was a big success because the editor came out with a statement that they weren't going to do that anymore. We we did a campaign um, against the way that Lego was becoming highly, highly gendered with a kind of uh, ask, ask back for both a more diverse way of representing girl figures and also going back to it was a very gender neutral kind of toy. It was part of its its pleasure and part of its charm and part of what made it a great toy and a number of different campaigns along those lines. Um, we, we are currently doing a different kind of work with Spark because we really perfected um, our ability to train girls and women to do intergenerational work. And part of the secret to this is that no girl does any of this by themselves. So we see all these TED Talks of individual girls who are changing the world. No girl does this by themselves. The media really loves that idea and the idea that there's actually a whole group of other girls and women and other um, adults kind of scaffolding girls' ability to do this kind of activism is really kept in the shadows. And so we're in Spark, we have available uh, consulting service and some webinars about how both for girls and for um, adults who want to work with girls to help them become feminist activists, 
and again, um, marginalized people of all kinds, and certainly male allies are critical to making these kinds of changes. So Spark does that kind of training, and now we're kind of training the trainers to do this kind of activism uh, with girls and, and other young people. I'm starting an initiative called Spark Research. So one of the things that's been great about Spark is it's always been um, situated in research, unlike most other activist organizations, that what we do is based on research. And we're going to start producing research of our own. And um, that's going to be something called participatory action research, which is a really different way of doing research. Basically, you know, the, the classic way is to have uh, a researcher and then subjects and you, you ask, you test them or ask them questions. And then you are the expert that figures out what's going on by doing quantitative analyses or even qualitative analyses. The idea of PAR, participatory action research, is that the young people are actually also researchers. They are co-researchers and they are developing research questions, the answers to which they want to know. And you come in as a researcher, almost kind of as a an advisor, but also with your question that that may connect with girls' questions to help them design a study Um, and for them to do the study themselves uh, using lots of different methods, usually pretty creative, uh, with the agenda of bringing their answers, uh, their findings to their community to engage and push for some kind of change that's important to them. So that's a new initiative that we're starting up in the fall. I love that. And make sure I leave uh, those information and show notes because I think it is such a wonderful uh, resource for many people and kind of can be very empowering for young teens and women. And also, as you mentioned, for men to engage in this efforts. Yes. And the other thing that um, Spark, we're calling it Spark 2.0 because we've really moved to kind of the next um, level of Spark. If you go to our website, www.sparkmovement.org, you'll see that there are actually hundreds of blogs that have been written by girls describing or writing about how they feel, what they think about all of these issues, and they're fantastic. There's also another set of blogs that are called research blogs that will also continue that my students have been writing where we take a piece of an article, a journal article published in a psychology journal, say, to which few people have access, actually. Um, If you're not part of a university system where you have access to these databases, if you were to Google, you know, an article that I wrote, you'd have to pay $50 just to get an article, which is ridiculous. Um, The other access issue is that a lot of these studies are written in ways that you, you kind of have to have a special knowledge to even understand, And so what we do is translational uh, work where we take a a study and we essentially, you know, like you and I are talking, explain what the study is about, how the answers were found, what the answers are, how they connect to people's real lives. Um, And there are many of those research blogs as well on um, sparkmovement.org, which will continue to appear there and then will continue to appear in this, this new initiative that we're involved with called Sex gen lab, one word, where we are doing primarily doing this um, kind of translational engaged research so that it's available for anybody uh, and understandable for anybody, for girls, for parents, for advocates, for policymakers, journalists, activists, people who are working with with girls and young people around these issues um, of gender and sexuality. That these are fantastic. And thank you so much for contributing this much to the field and empowering women and 
young and everyone, young men and women. And I think that's just fantastic. And I bet many of our listeners would love to get in contact with, with you. What would be the best way of reaching you? Um, at this point, I think going through our um, sex gen lab, uh, social media would be a great way to reach us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, um, sex gen lab, one word. And through our website as well, uh, there's a way to contact us through our website. I'm at Hunter College. You can always contact me there. Um, if you uh, go on the website to Hunter College, um, you can find me that way. If those venues don't work, I think people should get in touch with you and ask you what else they can do. Perfect. And I'll make sure I'll leave a link to the social media for the Spark and also SexGen Lab in the show notes. So if people are driving now, they can uh, get access of, to those information via our website. Dr. Tolman, thank you so much for your time. This was such a wonderful interview and I learned a lot from your experiences and thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a lovely day. You too. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Deborah Tolman. When we were talking about silent bodies, I was reflecting on the conversations that I had with many of my clients in my private practice in LA. They were sharing with me that how they are feeling detached from their bodies and sex is something that they do for their partners and the concept they have guilt around concepts of pleasure and many of these things as we talked about is our stem from our childhood so if that is something that you're struggling with i highly encourage you to work with a professional to address it to change it and I encourage you to accept sexuality and pleasure as an important part of life. Anyhow, that's our show for today. And for more great content, check out our website. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.